our new episode of Risk and Regulation Unraveled, our Grant Thornton's Financial Services podcast. I'm Irina Velkova, your regular host, and I bring to you conversations about the dynamic world of risk and regulation. We help our financial services clients understand new regulatory developments, upcoming changes, and how to stay ahead of the regulatory curve by inviting renowned experts to share their insight. Today's episode is part of a short series in which we talk about what the year ahead will bring to the key sectors in financial services. So to discuss the main themes that are going to dominate the banking sector this year, I have invited two esteemed banking experts. It is my pleasure to first welcome Simon Hills, who is the Director of Prudential Regulation at UK Finance. Simon leads the Prudential Capital and Risk Team, which focuses on influencing the implementation reforms to capital and liquidity requirements in the UK. He also leads UK Finance's work on the senior managers and certification regime and has extensive knowledge of Prudential regulatory architecture. Great to have you on the podcast, Simon. Welcome. Good to be here. We are also joined by Paul Garbutt, who is the head of banking at Grant Thornton and leads the practice. Paul is a seasoned banker, having spent a number of years in investment banking, followed by a career in advising large international and systematic banks on a variety of prudential matters. Welcome back to the podcast, Paul. Thank you, Irina. Good to be back. Well, perhaps starting with the conversation with sort of a very hot topic. Um, It's been turbulent a few days for the banking industry, to say the least. We are recording this episode just a few days after the corpse of SBB Bank and Signature Bank. Given I'm talking to two banking experts, it is impossible not to ask you about your views on how things unraveled. So perhaps, Paul, let's start with your opinion on how this was handled and what did you make of the regulators' response both um, in the UK and the US? Thanks. So I think um, first thing to to consider is what we know about um, what went wrong. And as I understand it, we've got a situation where Silicon Valley, uh, which is a much larger bank in the US than it uh, was in the UK, uh, had essentially um, adopted a a risk profile where it had a, a long position in a series of government bonds as, and a series of liabilities to, as we know, um, fintech and uh, life science type customers on the other side of its balance sheet. And what happens in that scenario, um, it's an age old issue, is the value of the bonds that they hold will start to fall as interest rates rise, uh, whereas the the cost of the liabilities doesn't move at all because they are much shorter in duration. Um, It's a classic balance sheet mismatch. Um, It's it was interesting to hear some of the commentary um, coming out uh, this morning on that as well. It it does feel like a from this from those basic facts that would imply a failure of risk management. Um, so it feels in many ways like a one-off incident that affects a a bank with a particular risk profile and a particular balance sheet profile. Um, so how is it handled? Um, I think in the US, it it was because of its scale, a bigger issue. Hence, I think you find yourself almost forced into that situation where the only thing you can do quickly is take over the liabilities of the bank and make sure those are honoured. Whereas in the UK, it's a smaller matter. Um, You would do the classic, and this is straight out of the 1970s playbook, rescue operations, sell the bank across to a much bigger organisation for a nominal sum, one pound in this case, um, and everybody can carry on and the bank can carry on in business with a much bigger parent sitting behind it with the deep pockets necessary to to ride out um, the reputational storm. Um, so how is it handled? Uh, I think if you focus particularly on the side of the Atlantic, Um, It was handled straight out of the playbook, frankly. Um, It was handled well. uh, And I think it was the FT that made the point that, you know, a lot of the tech companies and those life science companies, which have a history of complaining about doing business in the UK, uh, might want to reflect on how well it was handled um, by the UK government and the UK regulators and indeed the UK banking sector, um, because it wasn't just HSBC that were looking at this. Um, and it ensured, therefore, that you know UK PLC, particularly those fast-growing companies, were able to keep going. Um, so I think I think it's good. I think it didn't 
break the mould, um, but it was a good piece of work well executed. Indeed, the FT had some really interesting analysis and I would uh, advise the tech companies to read through those, definitely. Um, so from what you're saying, no risk of contagion I, I'm taking. That's right. I, it doesn't feel at all like a risk of contagion. It feels like a, un, a very unusual, frankly, balance sheet profile in the US that caused the issue. Uh, and it's a balance sheet profile which one would hope, and it was interesting to hear Howard Davis on the radio this morning putting his punches on this one, but one, I think the, the diplomatic language is one would hope that such a profile would not have existed in a well-governed UK bank standing alone. Yeah, and Simon, what were the reactions amongst the sector here in the UK? I, I can only imagine you were involved, sort of, in, in this kind of weekend's discussions in one or another form. Yes, to some extent, in one or other form, you're right, Irina. I mean, I think the reaction amongst the banking sector here in the UK was a degree of incredulity that a top 20 bank in the United States would basically run an open position, a bet on interest rates, in the way that it appears to, to, to have done. And we'll have to wait and see what the inevitable inquiries that are there in the US will, will conclude. But it does look, look to me like a, a, a bet on interest rates that went wrong. And of course, a bet that in, in this country, I don't think regulators would, uh, uh, certain regulators wouldn't allow us to take. I think we'd, we'd probably expect you know, a significant portion of a bank's interest rate risk to be hedged against exactly this sort of problem. You know, maybe 80, 90 percent of, of interest rate risk would, would be hedged. Uh, so uh, I, like Paul, I don't think there's a risk of contagion. There's obviously been some um, concerns in the US, which has spilled over into banking stocks over the past couple of days more, more globally. Um, but I do think it was a basic uh, uh, error in in how you 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 run a bank. I mean, I think the bigger question is what does this mean for the proportionality debate here in the UK? So UK finance has been very supportive of the PRA's move to uh, a more proportionate approach to prudential regulation for simpler firms, and it's just now starting off its work on how intermediate firms could be um, differently. Uh, regulators, those, those firms that are neither a, a similar firm nor a UK systemic bank, is there a middle ground in terms of uh, a, a more nuanced uh, prudential regime that could be con constructed? And I think we're going to have to recognise there may be political headwinds uh, when we come to talk about that and, uh, and, and UK finance's um, continual mantra that the MREL level set at uh, between 15 and 25 billion is 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 too low and that uh, we would much prefer an MREL limit of, uh, of 25 billion. So I think there will be some uh, more immediate headwinds to that, but it's a project that I think will continue. Lessons learned. You were talking uh, in advance about lessons learned. What's your take on what, what we should look at um, other than the point you just make about the proportionality considerations probably? I think it's absolutely about uh, making sure we understand where the risk in our uh, our uh, book is, doing those stress tests, banks in the UK and indeed in the US are required to do uh, stress tests, but not banks that were as, uh, as uh, uh, fell into the category that SVB did, because you'll remember back in 2018, um, and there was a much more proportionate approach to banking regulation introduced in the UK in, in the US, which I think meant that uh, quite large banks no longer had to do the sort of rigorous sort of stress testing uh, that we do across the whole population of banks in one shape or, or another uh, here in, in the UK. Which clearly failed the SVB. And, and also it's been obviously very clear, and, and you mentioned it, Paul, as well, and you did, Simon, that there's a direct link between the collapse of SVB and the high interest rates. What do you expect to be the wider impact of the high interest rates, both on, on banks and consumers in, in the next, so let's say, 12 months? Um, Simon, maybe you first this time. Yeah, sure. Well, let's, let's face it, banks generally prosper in the period of uh, high interest rates. We tend to uh, see increased net interest uh, margins. And you know, this has been reflected to a certain extent um, in the interest that the Treasury Select Committee in Parliament has shown in um how, how, how banks pass on uh, interest rates to uh, their, their customers, either on the, the borrowing side or, or the lending side. And we've got to remember that uh, 
that there's a, a tension, isn't there, between passing on interest rates to the larger number of depositors we have um, versus uh, passing on higher borrowing costs to uh, people to whom we, we lend. So I think there, there's, a, there's a tension there, but let's face it, banks generally uh, do well uh, in, in a time of uh, higher interest rates. But of course, then we have to think about what's coming. And uh, I've, I've been through enough uh, ups and downs in my uh, professional career to understand that in days of yore anyway, we, we saw high interest rates and then things went, uh, things, the economy collapsed and that leads to um, uh, increasing impairment and a reduction in banks' capital as uh, loans are, are written off. I do think now we've got a, a much stronger um, prudential regulatory regime to ensure that banks do have sufficient capital to see them through a, peer, a period of severe economic stress. And indeed, the stress tests uh, that are being have been done recently and are being done now on the largest UK systemic banks uh, tend to suggest that uh, banks do have sufficient capital to see them through the stress test scenario, which the Bank of England has has, has proposed, which is extremely severe. And remember, we've been living through a stress test in a way, haven't we, for the past two or three years with, with, with COVID and now the, um, the cost of living challenge. Paul, clearly um, robust prudential regime in the UK, so we think banks are going to do well. How about customers? Um, are they going to uh, sort of bear proportionately the, the impact of the high interest rates? I think, um, I, I think it's generally accepted that the impact on customers varies according to which income decile a particular customer sits in. So whilst I think there's a lot of headlines rightly around the impact this will have on people that sit in the lower deciles and will be very heavily hit by be it raise, rises in interest rates or, or other factors of, of inflation and what it means to people's pockets at the end of the week. Um, I think from a sector, banking sector perspective, it probably is less uh, impactful than some of the headlines would make out because I think the banking sector is looking, of course, across the spectrum of all of the income deciles and you know, all of us who, bank, who, who use the banking sector here. Uh, so I think the, the acute impact that certain parts of society are feeling are not going to be felt across the whole of society. That much is clear and I think understood in the data. Um, so for the banks, it becomes, I think, an issue of how to treat those customers that are heavily affected uh, in the fairest possible way. Um, and I, in fact, I think actually the larger banks in particular are getting well practiced at this and have a good history recently, particularly of, you know, working with customers as, as customers start to, to feel trouble. And I, I'm encouraged too. some of the conversations I'm having with with um, bankers, particularly on the vulnerable customer parts of the banking organisations. I'm actually encouraged, as are they, by the fact that customers are contacting their banks now even before they've hit problems because they can foresee, the customer can foresee that their mortgage rate is going to go up, that it will be a problem for them in nine or 12 months' time. And I think it's very positive that we're hearing a lot of tales of those of people in that situation approaching their bank before they've actually hit problems, knowing that there could be an issue in budgeting for them in a year ahead. Um, and that's very good because the banks are are reacting um, proportionately to that, are working with those customers to let to do what they can, you know, to help them keep their home, to to help them manage their debt in a responsible way. And that's much easier if it's the sooner that it's done rather than left until you know everything has got completely out of control after the event. So I think what you're going to see is a real spread of outcomes depending on people's income, their personal circumstances. But I would say, too, depending also on when people decide that they should approach their bank and start to take action on the problems coming up, because the banks will help these days. Uh, and that is um, that's a message that I think is uh, is is beginning to be understood by more and more uh, parts of the customer base in these banking groups. 
And then when you couple this with the cost of living crisis, though, um, do you think banks can do enough for well in order to support those vulnerable customers? So is it is it a wider response that is expected? Paul, maybe you first. I, I think I think reality's banks will do what they can to help. I think we've already seen actually with some of the um, prepayment meter um, publicity that hit some of the um, utility companies that this does require a collaborative effort between the banks and the other creditors that an individual customer is going to have. Um, I, I think, you know, you can't have one, you know, one particular creditor trying to trying to jump the queue ahead of everyone else. Um, that just isn't just. Um, so I, I think things are playing out at the moment in a what I'd call a more sensible way than perhaps they would have if one left everything as it was, say, 10 or 20 years ago. So no, I think you know banks will do what they can um, and help is available for those who do who are not able to sustain their costs. Um, but as I say again, I think it's important from a banking sector perspective to remember that this is not a universal problem across all of the customers the banks had. This will impact those on the lower income deciles far, far harder than it will those in the upper income deciles. So yeah, I agree with that. I think that I agree with that. I think that um, you know the people in society are going to be hardest hit by this. Uh, I, I guess many of them don't bank with banks in the first place, or they have a very uh, basic bank account and uh, little access to credit. I mean, that said, we're not seeing any signs of distress building yet um, in, in uh, the financials. The banks came out with uh, a couple of months ago. Um, impairments still at uh, you know very moderate level whether there's there's more to come I suspect there is but on the other hand I think that there are signs too that customers are are um, cutting back on their expenses to make sure they can stay current with their financing obligations uh, but we'll just have to see how it play, plays out for the moment it doesn't look too grim What's, in your view, Simon, what, if any, is going to be the impact of the, the, the cost of living crisis on the banks themselves? Are you expecting some sort of, obviously, defaults of loans, etc., but what would be the immediate effect? So I think the immediate effect is going to be on the businesses. Do people want to, uh, do people want to uh, move, move home? Perhaps not. Perhaps they're wondering whether uh, house prices will fall a bit further, and that's going to—they're going to be sitting on the fence for a bit. But on the other side, will uh, people be borrowing more through their credit cards? I think we've seen that starting to uh, build uh, as well. So I suspect it's uh, um, a tension between, you know, less secured borrowing and, and more unsecured borrowing. But in an environment where Banks are looking at their affordability assessments more closely and uh, ensuring that uh, the, the credit they give is, is right for the, for the customer, bearing in mind the um, duty of care obligations that we're, we're uh, now facing and, and, and quite properly. Uh, can we be certain that was, as we extend new funding to our personal customers that we're treating them fairly and they're able to treat them fairly in the future? And, and what do you think should be the role of the regulators against that backdrop? And I guess as a sort of a wider question as well, where do you, what key regulatory developments you think are going to impact the industry the most in 2023? Well, in terms of you know, how regulators should be dealing with the cost of living crisis, I think that um, they will be wanting to quite properly have quite deep conversations and, and uh, timely conversations with the firms they regulate to try and understand the uh, impact of the cost of living crisis uh, on, on, on their customers and to ensure uh, from the conduct side they're treating them fairly and, and from the uh, prudential side that they're, they've got suitable capital and liquidity to support a potential uh, downturn. But more widely, you know, I think we've, we've got a number of things coming our way, perhaps as we're thinking about um, some promises which were made uh, in, in the autumn of last year in relation to the Edinburgh reforms, for instance. So 
we, uh, quite a lot of Edinburgh reforms, perhaps repackaged some of them previous announcements. But in, in my space around the senior management certification regime, a review of that uh, and ring fencing. So in relation to senior management certification regime, I think it's right. What is it? 2016, uh, a good number of years on to kick the tires and make sure the senior management certification regime is, is doing the job. Uh, and we're going to get a, um, I think it's going to be a call for evidence from uh, the Treasury uh, by the end of March and uh, simultaneously a joint consultation or call for evidence, a discussion paper perhaps from the PRA and the um, FCA looking at some potential changes, senior management certification regime. I mean, I think, um, I think everybody on this podcast will agree that the senior managers bit of the senior management certification regime is absolutely right. It's about um, individual accountability. It's about management, management responsibility maps. Um, it's about making sure you've got the right people in the right, doing, the, doing the right jobs and they understand what those jobs are and that where they've delegated some of their responsibilities, they've, they've delegated in a clear and explicit uh, fashion. I'm personally uh, a little bit more dubious about the certification regime. It's a huge uh, process, administrative process for firms to run. We don't, after all, uh, and that process is around identifying whether the people working with us are fit and proper. We don't, after all, uh, deliberately uh, set out to employ people who are not fit and proper. Um, but so, so that element of the certification regime, that, which enables us to have confidence in that, which is the regulatory references, I think is really, really valuable. But other elements of the certification regime, the requirement to put, put somebody as a, a certified person on, on the register, um, you know, given, frankly, the, um, the less than stellar performance in terms of uh, the FCA uh, meeting its... Um, its performance criteria, its service level agreements for the certification regime. You know, I, I wonder whether that could be, uh, whether we could have another look at that. And then, of course, on ring fencing, um, a ski review said that if banks were resolvable, you know, maybe there wasn't a requirement for the uh, certification for the um, ring fencing regime going forward. And of course, there's a consultation paper out from Treasury on trying to look at the interaction between ring fencing and the resolution regime. And indeed. Um, the PRA did write to the Treasury Select Committee in the middle of uh, 2022 saying that it, banks, large UK systemic banks, were indeed resolvable. So question, uh, how, how do we take that forward in terms of the, uh, the long-term uh, status of the uh, ring fencing regime? I, I suspect it won't grow, go entirely, but the limits we know are likely to be it increase, so there will perhaps be fewer firms constrained by the ring fencing requirements. But I do think it does need a root and branch uh, examination. You know, now we have resolvable banks, to the extent we continue to have resolvable banks, does the ring fencing regime still, still play a role? Oh, I cannot ask you about the ring fencing regime. You and I worked on one of those five years ago, so you know, whenever it was uh, for What's your view? Do, do you think that we have to change the perimeter, if you like, or the scope, rather? I think, um, so actually, I, I think the concept of ring fencing was sound, and I can, you know, one has to look at it in the historic context of what happened in the um, in the credit crisis, and, you know, around 2009, 10, 11. Um, I think uh, there have been, you know, clearly complaints about it's it's over regulation it's costly i it's interesting when i talk to some of the largest banks now they've already they're past the ring fencing stage and the sense i have is that the disruption of as it were trying to unwrap the ring fence in a hurry would would ex the cost of that disruption would, would exceed the benefit that would now accrue to those larger banks um i think there is there is benefit to ring fencing in terms of ensuring a, a level playing field, but you've got to look at who actually is going to come into that regime going forward. And I think that's really the, the point you need to, mm. to be thinking about is where is it proportionate to apply ring fencing? And it, it depends too on the, um, it's very much a business model to me question. If you are a UK centric organisation that 
that does a bit of treasury related product work in order to support your UK based clients, then that no matter what size your balance sheet or what other metric you want to take, the, the, the need for ring fencing is rather different to what we saw before, which of course was where you had a, a mixture of international and UK and markets business all under one uh, group name. The other perhaps slightly cheeky point that I will observe is that much of the financial crisis that we saw um, just over 10 years ago, of course, arose not in the so-called casino banks, but actually in the um, the more traditional UK-based parts of those banks. So you've also got to think carefully around the stress testing and the scenario analysis that you're looking at when you when you think about what is ring fencing actually protecting here. Um, so yes, I think ring fencing is a sound idea. I think it has to be applied in a proportionate way, but I think we also have to reflect on the fact that it was the allegedly conservative UK centric parts of those banks, which caused the problems, you know, that we, we had to get out of from 10 and 12 years ago. And, and that, that perhaps leaves us on to Basel 3.1, because uh, at the moment, as many of you, are, we're working through a huge consultation paper closing at the end of uh, March, which makes proposals about how the PRA is going to implement Basel 3.1. In, in the UK, and there are some, you know, some some really quite important um, aspects of that in relation to withdrawal of the SME supporting factor. I'm in two minds about that myself, uh, but but other elements that will be hugely impactful. And you know, we shouldn't forget that we've got two, less than two years now to implement this, and uh, we need to understand how that's going to be done, particularly in relation to how pillar two will be used to offset the increase, likely increase in uh, in pillar one going forward, because that, that's that uh, mechanism is really pertinent to how banks plan their capital over the next two, three, four, five years. Uh, and we need some more clarity from the PRA. And we're, we're not apparently going to get that by way of a consultation paper until 2024. We're very much encouraging the PRA to speed that process up. And Paul, you work across a number of prudential matters with all of our clients. What do you see as the biggest sort of regulatory kind of focuses, if you like, in this year, other than obviously the Edinburgh reform and, and Basel III, which we already talked about? I think um, I think the regulators themselves will be trying to keep ahead of macroeconomic developments. Um, so one of the things that we haven't touched on particularly was the LDI issues that arose last year. Now, those are not a banking specific matter, but it does raise questions around um, changes in the macro environment and how those would play out within the financial services sector at large, of which the banks are still the, the single biggest conduit. So I think regulators will continue to look for where the next problem might arise and rightly so. Um, in terms of what else is coming through that's already known, uh, the consumer duty changes which will take effect in the summer, uh, the first round at least, um, I think those will, those will probably not change the behaviour of the larger organisations. But I think for the smaller and medium sized organisations and some of those which um, have not felt the full force of uh, conduct regulation um, previously, I think there will be some significant changes for some organisations scattered around who probably aren't getting this stuff right at the moment. Um, I think there will be a lot of focus on customer journeys. Uh, and I think for the banks, um, that's going to be an exercise in making sure that they are looking properly at the the full interactions that a customer has with them. Uh, whereas perhaps five years ago, leadership in a, was more often taking a product-based perspective. That question of the front-to-back um, customer journey, I think, is going to become more important. Um, going forward and the way that banks look at that. That will also, that will also, I think, from a regulatory perspective, 
wrap itself also into questions of operational resilience and, and if you like the whole experience that a customer has um, of dealing with its uh, with its banks. I think there was some concern that consumer duty might in fact become a, a pricing control by the back door kind of mechanism. I'm hearing much less of that these days. I think it's um, I think it is accepted that it's about getting fair fair pricing and fair outcomes for customers, not a not a question of trying to drive down pricing across the board. Um, so that, that'll be a, a big topic. That'll be a big change coming through for sure. The consumer duty that's well known. Um, I think all aspects of risk management will continue to be high. Uh, and I think people will need to be, you know, looking for where the next problems could arise and really challenging themselves on that. We have, after all, uh, experienced a dramatic rise in interest rates, which one could argue was a foreseeable path. Um, given the number of macroeconomic assumptions that you know, I think sensible people were making. But if you looked at it purely as a uh, an exercise in terms of, you know, what is the volatility of interest rates in the last 10 years told you to expect? And of course, the change we've seen now looks exceptional, truly exceptional, but I think was, I would call it foreseeable in a, in a sort of, you know, sensible scenario analysis. Um, the other one that um, I think we're going to see more about um, is is the financial crime agenda. I know we as a firm are doing very large amounts relating to financial crime with our banking clients at the moment. A lot of it um, relating to historic mistakes, but also a lot of it relating to um, financial crime planning and dealing with the impacts of financial crime going forward. So financial crime avoidance, as it were, going forward. Um, and I think that topic is not going to get any smaller for the banking agenda for some years yet. I'm not going to put a number on that, but three plus years at least. I think you'll still see this emphasis on financial crime. Some of it, as I say, is correcting some rather silly stuff, which you know has been has been has been in the press in the last few years. Uh, and some of it, I think, a case of trying to get ahead of the uh, criminal elements, which uh, which are still there. Um, so yes, I think there is much to do on the regulatory front still. I still think though the regulation and the risk management side comes back to challenging what are the adverse foreseeable events and are we ready to deal with them? I do hear a lot of talk actually about um, work in the financial crime space related particularly to avoiding Russian sanctions from what I hear in law firms and other businesses. So that's going to be interesting development when some sort of results are unraveled at some point, I guess, or become more public. Yeah, I, I think if you look at the, the economic statistics that are coming through, it's, it's, it's hard to believe that that sudden surge in EU imports and exports coming through all of the uh, countries that are joining Russia is, uh, is unrelated to the, um, the current sanctions regime that uh, is being applied to Russia and therefore it's hard to believe that in the coming years we won't hear some horror stories. I, you just wonder if this time people will look quite as silly as they did in the past, but I, I fear they will look just as silly and that it's, um, it's quite an egregious problem that really you look at it with hindsight and think should have been spotted. But then it's a case of you know finding those things at the time is never it always seems to be the problem. The cost of financial crime monitoring and anti-financial crime steps in banks is going up. I think the, the quality of the technology is also improving. I suspect you have to anticipate that in the, over the next five years, we're probably going to discover some silly stories from organisations of which at least one element of root cause was an unwillingness to spend the necessary resource on anti-financial crime measures. But who knows? We'll have to wait and see. But if I were a betting man, I think I would bet my 50 quid on that one. <laughs> <laughs> um, we've sort of framed the conversation so far a lot about resolving and fixing issues and, and problems and developments that are coming. Can we shift the focus slightly onto opportunities? And I guess the question would be, where do you see the biggest areas of growth for the banking sector in 2023? Simon, I'm conscious you've been silent for long. Well, let, let me uh, pop one idea into the uh, the melting pot. I mean, clearly, society needs to find ways of meeting the Paris climate goal targets. And banks, as <clears throat> funders, manufacturers of securitizations, can play their part, structuring bonds that uh, really are 
green rather than just being looked at through a pair of sort of, if you like, a lime-coloured uh, glasses. You know, greenwashing is a big issue for our uh, our investors in these products. We need to get that right. But there's a more technical issue too, because it seems to me that insurers are could be uh, a significant buyer of the mezzanine uh, tranches of some of these um, uh, renewable uh, securitizations. And right at the moment, the, the, the solvency two capital requirements uh, for investors uh, securitization, investor insurance investors in securitization really does mean that it's not uh, a viable op opportunity for them. So there is some revision going through in relation to solvency two, as we know, there is uh, the likelihood that the securitization regulations will be uh, revised by Treasury this year. We need to link up the, the banking side with the insurance side to make sure that all our firepower is, uh, is aimed at uh, meeting those uh, Paris climate change targets. And Paul, what's your what's your view on on financing net zero and and the investments in transition and the role of the banking sector in that? I think so. I think in Europe, particularly, the banking sector is there already. Um, I think if you look across the Atlantic in the US, um, this has become more of a political question as well that starts to, to overlay all of that. So it gets more more complex, I think, when you look across um, to trends from the US. But I think within Europe, I think I, I see a clear consensus that um, transition financing and moving to um, sustainable finance is, is clearly where things are heading. Certainly, though, we see as an issue on that so much around how one defines these things. So, yeah, you know, Practical examples, you know, so new generation aircraft that are capable of much greater fuel economy or capable of, of operating off of biofuels. They feel like something that ought to be part of a transition. They therefore feel like something that ought to be encouraged. But on the other hand, that takes you to a place where you're just encouraging the, air, the production of yet more um, CO2 emitting aircraft. Now, not arguing the, the facts on whether that is a good or a bad thing, but it, I think it is clearly a complex area. The data itself on these things is really hard to get in a clean and understandable way. The interpretations of the data, I think, are then even harder. Um, the science, I think, is well accepted, but the, the way that society has to adapt, particularly on transition, I think is much less clear. Uh, and much there's much less consensus about that, and that's all taken back to my point around if you look at some of the um, uh, issues that the US is facing in this. So transition, I think, is really, really difficult. Um, it comes back to data. It comes back to um, to people's um, perspectives. But I, it's clearly something that's got to be resolved and sorted. Um, and I, one of the bankers, the senior bankers I talk with, see it in the same light. That this is not some option this is actually a societal good that has to be delivered and it has to be delivered across the financial services sector with the banks as the main conduit for it but again it, it's an impact that perhaps is felt more in the asset management sector right now uh, and will also come across into insurance in terms of what i see banks doing to um, as opportunity uh, macro trends in the industry i think generally we are seeing more emphasis on growth through asset management. We're seeing more emphasis on being the uh, conduit for all manner of financial services and lifestyle choices through one's banking app. Um, and incredibly, I even heard a couple of different conversations with senior bankers where um, the phrase bank assurance models has come back in. So again, that piece of trying to be the conduit, the, the vehicle for everybody, for a customers you know total financial services interaction across insurance banking and asset management um can take you back to rediscovering the bank assurance which i think was a big big talk in the 90s and noughties which has uh, clearly dropped out of fashion said that uh, we do seem to be rediscovering the same cycles again and again it was always so wasn't it 
Do you think there is even more room for growth in the sort of the so-called embedded finance space? You did mention it there in terms of the um, all manner of banking, if you like, and I guess that's what you're referring to. Uh, I think it's so. Uh, look, I I think the 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 rush will be the push still will be to be the institution that controls the customer relationship. That's going to be the trend, and that will be true. I think in commercial banking as much as in retail banking. Um, so you want to be the first port of call for a customer on any financial services interaction. So that will be the piece. The bit that would un, un unwrap it a little bit will be things such as you know buy now pay, pay later some of the other financial services products that are going on as it were in a parallel sort of um, environment at the moment um, and actually to your question of one changes for regulators we can see that already with the buy now pay later sector uh, and the reach by the fca to bring that within the scope of their regulation and i think sensibly too because we've seen throughout history that if you have something that is essentially providing maturity transformation and lending to customers and taking on credit risk that sure enough it will start to impact on the banking sector and will act like a bank of course. Um, so I think, I think that's there's a bigger point there we were talking earlier about you know what's what's coming our way through regulation and and I think um, LDI there's the flash uh, crash in liquidity at the beginning of the Covid crisis are, are focusing you know, regulators, uh, both nationally and internationally, the Financial Stability Board, for instance, on non-bank financial institutions and how do we properly regulate them. And a big message for, for, from us on behalf of our members here at UK Finance is that, you know, you, you shouldn't be using the banking industry to regulate non-bank financial institutions if politicians, regulators have concerns about the financial perimeter, the regulatory perimeter, then those should be corrected rather than relying on the banking industry to do so. So, Paul, your instance of um, buy now, pay later being, being taken potentially within the regulatory um, uh, perimeter is an early example of that. Paul, you mentioned data a few times already. Um, uh, it seems lots of things go back to data these days, indeed. Um, what role do you think um, will technology and data obviously play into realising, you know, all sorts of this um, growth opportunities for the banking sector? But I guess more broadly, I, I sort of hear lots of references, obviously, to data and tech these days. And I think this is all valid. But is there like an over fascination almost with that? Or do you think it's fair to rely so much on that? Paul, maybe you first. Oh, blimey. Okay. Um, no, I don't think there is an overfascination. I think um, capturing data and the intelligent use of data, we are still in the early stages of that journey, in my opinion. Um, I think the, the challenge uh, will inevitably be around um, the quality of data that comes out of that as people try and get more sophisticated in the way that they analyze data but if you look at what a bank possesses um, it has huge amounts of data around people's behavior it, you start to combine that with some you know stronger analytical tools it it is at the same time both frightening but also very empowering for how a bank can support its customers um, through throughout all of their life change events um, to get to get people thinking about doing the right thing at the right time. Um, so I, there is an element of it which personally I find concerning in a big brother kind of sense, but there's also a piece I think that's there in terms of how banks can really support their customers um, through all stages of their life. Um, and I think I think we're really still at the start of that process. Um, there are questions around data, there are questions around technology integration that are still playing out. Um, there are questions around the capture of information and the reporting that the banks are doing. But it's it's just getting more sophisticated and it is a journey that we're on there, I think, to um, around the way that technology talks to technology and the way that data is then driving 
so much of the decision making that goes on within the bank, but also is there to support the customer in their own decision making. And as we talk about Basel 3.1, data really is one of the biggest issues that members uh, raise with us. You know, where's the data come going to come from? How do we know it's uh, it's uh, clean? How do we know it's um, relevant? Is it trustworthy? You know, banks are using machine learning and AI, I suppose, uh, already, and clear, clearly a lot of policymaker interest in the upsides and, and particularly the downsides. You know, uh, on the upside, does it aid decision making? But on the downside, does it result in decisions that are fair and explainable? And I think we're going to, as we adopt more and more machine learning, artificial intelligence, look at it in the wider societal sort of quasi-moral context. And we, we'd be wrong not to do that. And Paul, we, we haven't uh, chatted about open banking yet. So that was a really big initiative, cost the banks uh, a lot of money. Um, I, I'm not sure uh, banks and insurers are really making the most of open banking yet. I think it's been used more by those um, firms that are, are on, on the periphery of, of, of our businesses. Yes, I, you recognise. I, so I recognise that for sure. Um, and I, you know, again, I think that trend is still is is still running, frankly. Um, I think there was an expectation that with the in um, with open banking coming into force, that there'd be this big sort of bang of explosion of activity. But there, there largely wasn't. But there, I'm beginning to see things are shifting. That the that some of the users of the data that that's opening up are, are starting to get ever more sophisticated and, and frankly more useful to to their customer base. Um, and you can see. You can see how um, banks, the larger established players, want to maintain their position by being able to spot those bits of technology coming out of the fintech environment that that are going to be, be beneficial to them. Um, so a trend that I think was anticipated some years back, we are beginning to, I think, to see more and more playing out as as banks acquire fintech uh entities who've actually developed products that they can see will be additive to their customer service offering um so i think you know where do i get to the technology change continues as ever it continues at pace i think there's an element of it that um will be the infrastructure of the older banks having to still be as it were sorted that there are legacy issues that have to be um, dealt with by the introduction of newer, more modern software. There will be pieces around customer interaction, which become technology enabled and become better. But again, what you sit, what conversations we're having with um, with banks around customer journeys are very much that you know a lot of a lot of input, a lot of investment has gone into the directly customer facing piece. There's still the investment tail to come along that will then look at the the infrastructure piece within the bank that goes behind that highly automated um, customer piece and the other piece that that exists is you know you've got a historic um product based view within banks that needs that is still segueing across into a journey perspective uh and so what we're seeing also is a lot of effort now to try and integrate the various ways of a branch visit a telephone call an interaction on a on an app on a website how all of those things are, are brought together to give an overall customer experience um and there's still development going on in that space we think and we haven't even touched on the whole virtual reality slash metaverse thing and perhaps we're not going to go into that this podcast but seems to be a lot of still unexplored potential for growth across the sector. So I guess those that actually tap into that will have the competitive advantage in, in the near term. Um, final question to both of you. Um, and I, I kind of like asking this question on uh, everybody on this series. What would be your advice, if you like, to a CEO of a bank for 2023? Simon? I think uh, I would I would say, look, you're bracing for a, a potentially quite a tough economic environment, profitability is going to be subdued. You're going to have to look at your cost base, but get on board with the digital delivery agenda we were just talking about. And then focus on talent management, 
focus on uh, succession planning, because we all know it's been jolly difficult to get the right people into the right roles over the past uh, year or, or so. In terms of minimising regulatory risk, I think make sure your regulatory reporting is as good as it can be uh, and understand the impacts of Basel 3.1 on your business models. But fundamentally, um, remember the purpose of, of banking and more societal purpose of banking, perhaps, which is taking deposits, making loans and maturity transformation. Look for the opportunities there, but also the risks. Getting back to SVB, it, perhaps that's, uh, that maturity transformation risk was, was, was some, something they weren't quite on top of. Yeah, thank you, Simon. Paul, your wise words. Uh, so I think echoing a bit what Simon has just said, I, I would say there is there isn't a cost pressure on banks. There is a need to increase the returns on equity. We widely anticipate that increased interest rates will will help in that, um, but they aren't going to be some golden panacea because there are um, there are certainly sectors and elements that are going to be difficult from a provisioning perspective. So where do you go? Uh, I would echo what Simon says. I would not. I would avoid any temptation to cut back on the technology side. I think you've got to keep investing in technology because otherwise there will be, I think, in the next 10 years, situations where those who have missed the boat will, will suffer um, because they haven't got the right tech. The other thing that I think CEOs need to, to make sure is that they that the tech skills that their workforce have are current and that actually the organisation across the board is positioned to take advantage of what new technology offers. Tech spend is not something that goes on in isolation in the IT department. It's a matter of training and retraining of people across the whole institution so as everyone understands what the technological capabilities that are being brought in are and how to actually use them to deliver value to customers and value to the institution. So that training piece, I think, is is a really important part of their technology journey. Certainly, I don't envy bank CEOs this year. There's a lot going on with it's around investing in technology and delivering the digital agenda, the taking risk management close to your heart. Um, and obviously investing in capabilities and talent. Um, thank you very much, Paul, for this conversation. It's, it's been absolutely great to have you. Um, let's hope no more banks co-opses in 2023, at least, and smoother waters for the sector to sail in. As usual, I would also like to thank our listeners for tuning in. I hope uh, you found the conversation interesting and insightful. And you can also sign up to the Financial Services Regulatory Newsletter to receive weekly updates and invites into your inbox. And to stay up to date with upcoming episodes, be sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Amazon Music. We'll be back with our next episode very shortly to talk about other exciting topics of the risk and regulatory world. Thank you again and goodbye.